Thank you for joining us for Opportunity Makers. Notch was founded by two immigrants, and ahead of National Immigrants Day, we wanted to showcase and profile storytellers and leaders across different sectors and industries to prove that immigrants, by and large, are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers. Lena Shields is the Chief Media Officer at Lilly USA, which is a part of the Eli Lilly and Company brand. She is Ad Age Woman to Watch, Ad Week Executive Mentor, and MMM Woman to Watch. We're so excited to have Lena with us today, and we can't wait to hear her story. Hi, everyone. Um, Welcome to another amazing conversation with an amazing immigrant story and immigrant executive. I'm really excited to welcome Lena to the Opportunity Makers podcast. Um, I met Lena um, actually after COVID, I think. Um, And so we've only met virtually, but from the first conversation we ever had, I I felt so connected to her largely because of all the common stories we had of leaving our worlds behind and coming over to the U.S. So I'm very excited for her to share her story with all of us today. Welcome, Lena. Thank you. Thank you, Anda. It's great to be here. So, Lena, I'd like to start with a really high-level question, which is what's your coming to America story? Why did you, how did you end up in the U.S. and why did you (laughs) decide to come here? That's a great question. I always say I actually have two coming to America stories. I moved the first time. I'm born and raised in Italy and um, finished university in Italy and then always knew I wanted to get um, an MBA or a graduate degree. And I ended up doing so in the U.S. and kind of cold calling my way into different colleges and really not knowing anything, honestly, around the not just the school system in the U.S., but also just what the process is after you get a graduate degree. And so I ended up in Los Angeles and that was, you know, um, I came for the MBA uh, program at the time and, um, but not through, you know, kind of a a high honor type of situation, just me basically convincing a school to um, get me into the program and writing letters to different schools. As I came through that, I always say I have a second story because by the time then, you know, years later, I moved forward to Indianapolis where my company is headquartered. Um, that's where I, I feel like the real cultural shock happened for me. I think I had an initial soft one. And then I feel like I really met America when I moved to Indiana. <laughs> so I guess, tell us a little bit about that. What was the initial cultural shock when you got to LA? And what was the second cultural shock when you got to, to Minneapolis? Yeah. You know, when I moved to Los Angeles, I love Los Angeles. I still feel like it's my home in the U.S. is Los Angeles because that's where I first moved and that's where I learned my way around the U.S. Um, but when I first moved to Los Angeles, it was, for some things, it was actually similar to um, the part of Europe and Italy where I had grown up with, which was fairly diverse. And so um, Los Angeles has a lot of personality and has a lot of cities within the cities and cultures within the cultures. And, and it's a very distinct feeling in each part of the cities. Um, you can turn the corner and be in a completely different cultural space than, than others. So I didn't feel, I felt it was very different. I also felt in LA to me, and, and I think it happens to a lot of immigrants that move straight to LA, but we grew up watching American movies. And so I never realized that when you watch American movies, you're actually watching LA for the most part, especially the time I grew up in. And so everything to me felt like it literally, like it was a movie set, everything like the I was fascinated by the laundry mats. I was fascinated by the cop car. Everything looked like a movie, like 7-Eleven were like such a huge attraction to me. It was just, it was a movie. And so it felt surreal to some degree. 
and it was hard on other levels, on the personal level, but the impact of the city felt like being in a movie set. And then when I moved to Indianapolis, um, you know, I think when you move to a big city first, like Los Angeles, even if you take vacations and you travel, you typically go to places where other people are traveling to versus when I moved to Indianapolis, it wasn't necessarily a touristic attraction. And I had, uh, that's where I had a real cultural shock because it was just, you know, not, not to say anything badly about Indianapolis, but, you know, I think the the type of people were different. There wasn't any diversity at, at all, um, you know, and just, I think even the level of comfortability that people had with me in Indianapolis was very different. You know, in LA, I was just mistaken for other ethnicities, but in, in Indianapolis, um, you know, when I first moved, it was um, it was uncomfortable. So that's where I really started to feel like, okay, this is America. It, it is, you know, Los Angeles is a microcosm in and of itself, I think. Yeah, I share the feeling of uh, feeling like everything it looks like a movie set because I also grew up. I actually grew up watching Dallas, which was yes. <laughs> that's, that's why when I actually went to Dallas for the first time, I was so excited and everyone was confused. Like, why are you excited about Dallas? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's JR and like, that was the first content that we got to see, uh, uh, was it the same for you? Did you watch Dallas growing up? My mom watched Dallas a lot, Swellen and JR. And then, you know, we watched the Bold and the Beautiful. The Bold and the Beautiful. Yeah. Yep. Which is so funny, you know, because that's the other thing. When you move, I found like I had a a built-in four-year delay, like, People that were four yeah. years older than me, you know, like a song would come on or a movie would come on. And I was, I would, they would be like, like, oh, that came out when I was 15 years old. And I was like, yeah, me too. And they're like, no, it's impossible because I'm five years older than you. Like, no, but we would get this stuff yeah. five years later. So I was also 15 when I first saw this. So, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, you know, I think we didn't really like Love Boat also was a big one growing up and um you know i think we didn't realize that it wasn't like the peak programming here in the u.s it was just what we were getting but yeah you feel like you know you move like i said laundry mat absolutely fascinated me because we didn't have those in europe and and um you see them in every movie those in 7-eleven those were like my two things <laughs> the laundromats i i mean we still don't have them in romania i'm still fascinated by the laundromats i kind of want to go there and hang out you know like you see in the movies <laughs> yeah because something uh, always happens. It's like in the laundromat, the diners, and the 7-Elevens, every movie, something always happens. For sure. So if that was the initial excitement, um, I guess, did that wear off? If so, when did it wear oh. off? And why are you still in the U.S.? Like, what sort of made you think that this is the, the place for you to continue growing as a professional? Yeah, you know, it was a mix of professional and personal. You know, I, I did um, initially, my ex-husband was American. So, you know, I think that was part of that as well. I did move back to Europe as part of um, as part of my work. I, work. I moved back for three years. I did think, you know, so early on in those days, um, you know, I was trying to find a job afterwards. And I think that's where some of the initial excitement really started to wear off, like seeing the difference when I was trying to, find a job and I was sometimes more qualified actually that um, people coming out of the U.S. universities and um, but it just it was a uphill battle even from the beginning but what I also was very cognizant of because I had done university already in my own country you know and I had worked to some degree in my country as well that you know as much as I love Italy and as much as you know it's progressing you know at the same pace as the rest of Europe but there is um, there was a a real 
acknowledgement on my end that, you know, women didn't have the same seat at the table in, in Italy and as men did, especially in the areas where I was working on and where I was interested in working. And I always knew that I wanted to have a big footprint. I didn't want a small job. I didn't want a small challenge. Um, I wanted to have a big footprint. And I, and so that was also why, because I do believe, and you do get the sense when you first move here, that this is the land of opportunities. You know, as long as you, you know, you're allowed to work here, that, that you know, I think with the type of work ethic that you bring coming from another country, this really feels like there's a lot of opportunities that you don't have in your country. So that that initiated also me staying and I was I was hungry and my eyes were so big at all the things that I could do if I work hard. And, you know, I think the American dream was palpable um, back then. And um, and then, you know, I stayed and I pursued a career that also would allow me to um, be global in nature and go back. And, and I did. I was I was very clear from, with myself in the beginning if I ever went back to Europe with work. Um, that I want to go back, but paid by the U.S. <laughs> because um, I wanted to be able to also have those bigger responsibilities that at the time weren't really, um, you know, reachable for for women um, in Italy for the majority of the time. Interesting. So you felt like by by kind of being in the U.S. and and uh, deciding to spend more of your time here, there would be not just more opportunity in general, but more opportunity for you as a as a female executive. Yes, at the time, yes. Um, compared to Italy, I should say, I hadn't yet sparred with corporate America and corporate American executives um, to see that reality. You know, I started extremely junior, like the most, I mean, literally the most junior position anybody would hire for. And, and it was typically, you know, at the very first half, the first half of my career um, has always been, if I look back, one common thread is I've always taken the job nobody wanted. And, and they've given it to me most of the time because nobody wanted it. You know, even when my very first job at Lilly, which was in sales, which was not what I wanted to do, but it was a way for me to get a foot in the door to get into marketing. The only reason why I got that job, you know, even though I was hyper prepared, I even had wrote in a paper on Lilly in, in college. Um, but it was because it was the high desert and nobody wanted to sell in the high desert and, and the Inland Empire. And so I moved from LA to the desert and to the Inland Empire. And I said, sure, I'll move to the territory. And, you know, same thing when I first got um, my first position in marketing, I kept saying for three years that I wanted to move into marketing. And it was only because on that third year, the senior director of sales said, well, we have no one from California going to Indianapolis on rotation and we can't look like that. And I was like, well, I'm still here. And they were, you know, they were like, well, I guess we'll send her. But it was literally because there was no one. And I took the job that no one wanted at the time, which was called e-marketing back then. Um, which basically had me, you know, I, that's how I've learned all digital, which now is like, oh, yeah, she's very, you know, she's an expert digital marketer. But back then, nobody wanted to do the job. So the very first, until I really established myself, my first half of the career was always taking the job that nobody wanted and then kind of showing up at that job and, and making myself known through work. Just I just needed the opportunity. I just needed to have a seat. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is I... I've done maybe uh, five of these interviews and the massive common thread across all of them is exactly this, like we took the job that no one else wanted. Um, so oh, really? do you think that, <laughs> that uh, I mean, have you seen that across your immigrant friends? Do you think it is largely because you are immigrant that, that you would go for any opportunity that's offered to you? And if so, what's the psychology behind that in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's a it's a double um, criteria. Meaning, yes, because you're an immigrant, you'll take whatever opportunity 
one. But secondly, I have felt very vividly and to some degree I still feel it now and certain, every time I go for a stretch, very, very vividly it's felt that um, it's not just a you go for every opportunity, but people are uncomfortable within the establishment to put you up for it, especially in corporate America, to put you up for the right. opportunity. So it's not just that we want, we go and we want to go for the job that nobody wants. It's also, you really have to be the best resort for people to put you up for that job most of the time. And that's certainly what happened to me. And I think it's a, you know, in my case, it's been a commonality or, or a combination of not just my accent and the way I spoke English at the time, but also, um, you're culturally different and I found it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And so, you know, you feel this huge pressure to conform, but it, which is transmitted to you by people that give you that job that nobody wants. But at the same time, it's, it's uncomfortable because the very thing that makes you you and reminds them that you're different. And it just is not, you know, it's not the easy shot. And um, one thing I always say now that I'm in a different position and I'm able to make decisions on other people's career is that, the first half of my career, I was always the least obvious choice. And so because of that, uh, and having been given that opportunity, sometimes reluctantly, because of that, you know, as now I am at that table for succession management, that's who I look for. I look for the least obvious choice. And I try to champion that because that's often where talent, you know, can be discovered. And so I think it's a double thing. I think we go for the job that nobody wants. It's not like we want to, but that's what's offered most of the times or left, I should say, in my experience. Because we are um, sometimes not as, like I said, we're not as, um, we're not the mold. And so sometimes it feels uncomfortable. I have a lot of personality and, you know, as much as I try to tame it, my Italianness comes out and it does make people, I mean, to this day, I've gotten feedback like no later than last week about how I speak and, you know, and then I'm too passionate and, and on and on and on. So I think it's a combination, but I, I also think. I was just going to say, I also think the psychology of it too is, um, and I've seen it myself and a lot of other immigrants, is that you really spend a lot of time feeling grateful for that position, which is great on one hand because it's humble, but on the other hand, I think it, it cuts us short. It, it takes you so much longer to see that you're also cheated on salary and and you know benefits and and other things because you feel so great like the the first 10 years i couldn't believe every day i would walk into work my i would swipe my badge and it would work every day and i just wish you couldn't believe it you feel so grateful that you're able to have this opportunity but it's taken advantage of oftentimes a hundred percent well i i wanted to ask you a question but first i want to comment on what you just said I think uh, there's a separate dynamic that happens where from a visa standpoint, it's expensive to hire an immigrant, even if they do take a job that no one else wants. Um, it's mm -hmm. more expensive than to, to, you know, to hire a non-immigrant. Um, so as a result of that, what we've seen is that the salaries of immigrants tend to be lower on average than the, the salaries of Americans, which is another interesting stat around, you know, in a, to some extent being taken advantage of. Um, but the question I wanted to ask you, and I guess and to some extent it really kind of ties into everything you just said is, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about immigrants in the US? Yeah, I think I still see um, that um, there's this misconception that was not the same equals bad to some degree. It's not a spoken misconception, but was not the same as me or what doesn't sound the same as me or look the same as me equals bad. 
And so um, I think there is a misconception that, you know, they, they, you're almost trouble to hire because you're unpredictable and you're, um, you know, I just don't know the outcome. So if I'm a hiring director and I can hire somebody who came out of a school that's very similar than me, came out from a neighborhood that's very similar than me, then it's predictable in nature and I know what to expect versus I think there is this misconception also that um, A, that immigrants are kind of um, difficult to handle or manage to some degree. And I think it's true and I'm proud of that. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's the best thing. I mean, we have, we have opinions and, and we are outspoken about them. I do think the language barrier, you know, a lot of what I just mentioned applies, unfortunately, to a lot of different dimensions of diversity, not just immigrants. However, I think for immigrants specifically, there's also, there is a piece of the language. And um, I hate to say this misconception this way, but I think a lot of people that do come from other countries may find themselves in this. Is sometimes the accent or even, even the different way of articulating a phrase, especially at the beginning of your immigration in the U.S., uh, it's equated with um, lack of intelligence or less intelligence. And you have to work six times as hard or prove as much or like, you know, always come with data where you hear a lot of other people, you know, just making generalities and comments that are generalities in nature. And I do think it's uh, an unspoken and very, probably very unconscious bias, but because of the accent and people sometimes, even the way you articulate a thought, it can take you longer. Um, and people have a hard time, you know, not following you, but having the patience sometimes to listen to something different than them. I do think there's a misconception that we're not as intelligent. And so um, I think we always have that uphill battle. I mean, to this day, I mean, I obviously, you know, I have big responsibilities. I'm doing well in my job, but I see the difference. I see the difference when I come talk about a budget versus I need to be, I mean, beyond extremely buttoned up compared to my colleague because they're just that uneasiness that's still there. I mean, you know, I'll, I still count, I still count in Italian. I can't help myself by counting in Italian. So there's an uneasiness. <laughs> no, I, I understand. I think part of my survival mechanism, especially during fundraising, was to transition very quickly or as quickly as I possibly could to at least saying some things with an American accent. Um, before mm. I started fundraising, I had a much thicker accent. And I think my brain literally went into survival mode and said, yeah, you put on this accent, you're not going to succeed at this. Um, so it was really, yeah. I think it's, it's it maybe not coming off as intelligent or as buttoned up or, or as articulate. But I think it's also about the fact that people understand ideas, especially big, complex ideas and ambitious ideas, if you are speaking in their language. Right. And that is mm -hmm. more than just using the quote unquote translation word to word. It's also about having cultural, um, you know, idioms and metaphors that would resonate yeah. and, and comparisons. Right. Um, so I'm curious, how how do you present to a room of I'm sure you've been in this situation, right? Like we all know corporate America is it's not just non-immigrant, but it's also predominantly white male. So. How do you think mm -hmm. about presenting to a room like that? Do you use sports analogies? Like what, what do you do to build bridges of empathy? Yeah, bridges of empathy. I love that. Well, first of all, I learned all my English from, from Tupac. So I had to clean it up when I first moved <laughs> to the States. All my English came from music and it came specifically from the 90s <laughs> hip-hop and rap music. So, you know, let's, so let's just start there. I had to clean it up significantly. <laughs> and then... 
sorry, my daughter. Um, and then um, once, you know, I, I think it changed from the first half again to the second half of my career, because in the first half, had you asked me that question, I would say, I, I, I adjust, you know, I prepare, I, yes, I try to sound as much as now sports analogy, I could never do because I don't understand um, all most of American sports, but, and they just fall flat, but it was very much, you know, taking away and taking out everything that was too Italian or everything that was too different. And, and so, you know, trying to sound as much as possible as, um, yes, as a, you know, middle-aged white male as much, because that's what I saw success like, and that's who my audience was. And then I think as I started transitioning more senior management levels and, and roles, um, and, you know, the real turning point for me came when I started managing people and when I started managing women and mothers and, you know, people of different backgrounds and understanding that if I did that, that became an aspect. It just, you know, I could never see myself expecting that from people that were reporting to me because I found and I saw the beauty in the fact that they all had different backgrounds. And so I felt the responsibility to show up the way I am and, you know, take it or leave it to to the room full of, you know, senior manager, middle-aged white man. And so I think the difference now is I don't feel any less pressure because it's still, I still feel like it's a definitely a moment of truth every time you're in that room. And, and it's one that you either um, pass or fail. You, it, it, there is no upside. And, um, but what I do is I, I try to anchor in data as much as possible. So what has changed is that I'll show up a little bit more authentic to who I am, but what has not changed is that I will prepare more than anybody else in that room because I know that I will be questioned in different ways and I know that my credibility will be at stake. So um, the good thing is about preparing that way with numbers and data. The bad thing that I have noticed recently, I caught myself and it's, it has been a real thing, is that I found myself leaning on the opinion of, um, frankly, on white male colleagues to say, well, you know, this is the data and this is what I think we should do. By the way, you know, Brad agrees as well. So clearly a good idea. And I caught myself and I, um, I found myself in pretty bad situations actually as a result of that, because then people take credit for your work very quickly. And so I, I'm starting to correct that, but it was a moment for me to realize, wow, like why to even to myself, why wasn't I good enough? Like, why wasn't my opinion good enough? Even to my own self that I felt like I had to bring somebody else to corroborate that and to sustain that. So um, I think it's changed now, but I, I still definitely catch myself. So I prepare myself with hyper preparation. And then, you know, I, I will be myself because I know that uh, as much as possible, I, and if I crack a joke, it's my own joke. And it's, and a lot of times it's, is, um, you know, self-deprecating type of jokes, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, it, it just helps to make people at ease, I suppose. That makes sense. Um, I that that entire thing resonates with me a lot. Uh, <laughs> if you were to go back to your the beginning of your journey in the U.S., what advice would you give to yourself as a as a young immigrant trying to make her way through corporate America? Hmm. Uh, I would say, oh wow, I would say um, you deserve to be here first and foremost. Don't forget you deserve to be here. Um, I would say. Half of these people don't know what they're doing. Remember that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I would say, you know, um, to demand for salary, to demand for raises, to demand for 
um, understanding pay benefits and, and just really the financial part of the job. Because there's no question that we put so much passion and work and, and go above and beyond everything that's requested. Uh, I think it is true to the DNA of immigrants of the U.S. because of how we got to the job. And so I would tell myself to, you know, to take all my space at the table, to not apologize for being there and to demand what I bring and that I deserve the worth of what I bring to the table. I love that. So my final question, uh, Lena, I'm curious how you think of diversity on your team as an immigrant and what role do you think diversity or immigration and immigrant play in the in the creation of that diversity on on different teams? I so I I I pride myself to um, being able to really focus on creating. It's not just about diversity, but my real focus is about creating a place within the organization where people that have different backgrounds of any sort feel like it's safe and feel like they can progress their career and they can learn and they can, you know, take all the space at the table and they're sought after. So for me, it's really about creating the space of inclusion and not just um, diversity, but making it almost known that this is a platform. I like to think about it like an underground platform within the organization where people know that they can come here, whether they're part of my team or not. And I always say, once on my team, forever on my team. Because if you're, if I brought you in, then that means I saw this special something. And then that's always going to be the case. So I like to think that as an extended way of fostering diversity on my team. And now from an immigrant perspective, um, you know, I, I get pretty uh, fierce about defending that piece. Because, you know, I think corporations have, to your point, they have more systemic ways to be able to include immigrants, whether it's through, you know, actual long-term employments or whether it's through um, short-term assignments from other countries. And so where I see my role in that is actually making space in the conversation because I see it even from peers and same level um, teammates that, you know, again, when there is, I'm, I'm just so sensitive to the language barrier and whether the, when there is a moment of hesitation and when there's just uncomfortability from the rest of the team, it is my job to make space for that person. And I not only do I pride myself in this, but it actually gives me so much self-fulfillment to be able to almost create back from other people what I didn't have at the time when I first started. So I see that as a, not even anymore just a source of success for the team. It's, you know, a non-negotiable condition, you know, even and not just immigrants. Like my Lily is a very traditional company. A lot of people kind of grow up in Lily. And, you know, my team is in transformation uh, across the different parts of the business that we touch. And 98% of my team is external hires for that reason. And they do come from all walks of life. And some of them are immigrants, and but there's all kind of diversity. And the reason why is because it's not just that I could say I pride myself in it, but it is better business result. But also it gives me an incredible amount of satisfaction to be able to create that space for just incredibly talented people that can come to work on my team. Thank you so much, Lena, for sharing your story and for being with us today. And again, join us next time for Opportunity Makers, where we profile top immigrants and hear how they are opportunity makers, not opportunity takers.